You're listening to Notes from Norwich. Welcome to episode 27 of Notes from Norwich. 27 is three cubed. My wife, who's a math teacher, would uh, be sure to tell me that. Three times three times three, 27. It's very important, oh. that kind of thing. My name is Chris. I am one of the three presenters, along with my good friends, Jan and Marguerite. Are you both well? We are. Yes. Did you get snow yesterday? It was the day before yesterday, I think. Overnight. Yeah. Overnight. From, uh, yeah, from Saturday night into Sunday. Mm, so yeah, there was that's, pulling that's when, to do yesterday. Yeah, that's when we got it here, too. It's nice, fluffy snow. It's yeah, it's beautiful. I got to use my gas-powered snowblower for the first time. I don't like yeah. to use it. I've got an electric snowblower that, that I use when I can. But today I was, um, well, today, yesterday, I had to um, blow the snow away from my neighbor's uh, driveway and sidewalk because he's recovering from surgery. So I said, oh, this is a great opportunity to get out the new, to me, used gas-powered snowblower. And um, it is loud. Yeah, they're very you know, loud. I don't use uh, two-stroke engines very often. Everything I have is electric. My lawnmower is electric. Yeah. It's really loud. Listen to us talking about snowblowers when we should be talking about... Julian of Norwich in chapter 51. This is the second part, hopefully the second half of chapter 51, which is arguably the central organizing vision of the whole of Julian's revelations, this revelation of of a, a master and a servant, and the servant falls down into a ditch and suffers in the falling. Um, although the pain seems to mostly be spiritual and emotional pain rather than physical pain. Mm-hmm. So uh, we are picking up midway through that chapter because we talked about it a little bit last time. So where are we, where are we starting today? Well, let's start with Julian describing the servant. And she says that the servant has a double meaning, one outward and one inward. Outwardly, he was clad humbly as a workman who was used to hard labor. Inwardly, the servant was shown a foundation of love, which he had for the Lord, which was equal to the love that the Lord had for him, which is a clue. A clue for what? So. um, A clue of what? A clue of what? Well, a clue of the identity of the servant, Mm. in my opinion. That's how how I read it. Um, She's sort of building up to this idea of who uh, who the servant is. She has identified, for those who um, forget from last time, she has identified the servant as being Adam. And insofar as the servant is Adam, he is also all of humankind. So... All of humanity jumped up and ran to do God's will and fell into a ditch and suffered physical pain and spiritual pain and mental pain and anguish and felt alone and trapped in a mess. Felt distant from distant as well. The master, distant. although objectively speaking. 
the distance was not great at all. The distance was nothing at all. But to the servant in the ditch, the yeah. distance felt enormous over and impossible to overcome, perhaps. To the point that the servant almost forgets the motivation for jumping, for, for <laughs> leaping up yeah. to do the Lord's command. I read a book, the name of which I wish I could remember. I've been trying to track it down again for ages. But it was a book about basically the spiritual dimensions of chronic illness, physical illness. And there was a um, reflection in there that harmonized very, you know, I read it right after getting over the flu. And I'd had the flu for like a month by that point. That when you get sick enough there's a point where you cannot, you can't remember what it was like to be healthy. Mm-hmm. That it seems so um, foreign, like it, almost like it was a dream to imagine that you once had the ability to walk miles and now like you can barely make it down the hallway to the bathroom. Right. And it's like, it's, it's a dream. It's a, it's another life. It's somebody else's life to imagine yourself as healthy. And then you get healthy again. And then it becomes very quickly a dream that you were as sick as you were. Um, and so that, that always strikes me um, when I read things like, like this chapter 51 of, of the, um, how much our psychology and how much our, like the, the experiences we have shape our, spiritual lives, our sense of separation from God, even though Mm -hmm. objectively we're not separate, but it feels so potently like we are almost like we can't remember what it was like to be in communion with God because we're so focused on the falling, which we all kind of experience in, um, in many ways. It's almost like a lack, you know, when babies are developing, they at first they don't have a sense of object permanence and so if they don't see something it's gone it doesn't mm-hmm. exist and i've noticed that on a spiritual level with myself that and it's that sort of same dynamic where once i'm out of a spiritual state of health or whatever it i just i, I very quickly like start to forget about it. Once I lose sight, once I turn my gaze away from God, my my soul just like doesn't have very long short-term memory. Um, <laughs> and I just... <laughs> so that ties into that like age-old repeated criticism that Christians are, you know, one way for an hour on Sunday mornings and then they're complete jerks the rest of the week or or they're, <laughs> they're a different, they're a different way. They behave and think differently the rest of the week. Um, yeah, maybe it's just that we have, once we're removed from having the presence of God and the experience of worship thrust into our faces by being in the midst of an act of worship, um, you know, we're, I mean, we're still connected to God, but that connection is crowded out by so many other um temptations and experiences yeah. pushing in on us. But that's the work of the spiritual life is yeah. to cultivate that constant, consistent awareness, that praying without ceasing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's probably one reason why so many 
spiritual traditions and spiritual masters begin with silence, solitude, and simplicity as tools, because all three of those are removing those distractions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so once we quiet down and take away all that fuss, then we can see, you know, like, like once, once you quiet down the rest of the room, you can hear the whisper from across the room. But, you know, when everyone's talking, you can't hear it. Same whisper. Whisper's always been there, but drowned out by all this other stuff in our lives. So it <laughs> talks about, um, towards the bottom of page 127 in the orange book, the Paraclete Deluxe Edition, um, there was a treasure in the earth which the Lord loved. Um, and this, this is an aspect of, of the parable that uh, she, doesn't, she doesn't touch on in that original paragraph that Marguerite read um, last episode. But this idea of, of a treasure being on the earth. Um, and this is the purpose for sending out the servant. So she, so she's trying to grasp what the work of the servant is. What is the work that the servant leaps up so eagerly to do? Um, and she, she says, then I understood that he would do the greatest work and hardest toil. That is, he would be a gardener. <laughs> and I thought of you, Chris, cause you're constantly <laughs> working on your garden. It seems. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, You know, you think of the fact that what does everybody need? And everybody needs food. And where does it come from? It comes from the earth. And so the greatest work is that of a gardener. And the hardest work is that of a gardener. And just think of here's the Lord and there's some treasure out in the earth that he loves And the servant is going to go and produce it for him. To grow it, yeah. Grow it and make it happen. Bring it out. Bring it into harvest. Bring it into uh, being for, for the Lord. And I think that that is very, very key to the meaning of this whole, this whole story that she's told. And it it ties up this. Adam and Christ kind of duality because you have Adam set in the garden of Eden to cultivate um, and you have Jesus. And what comes to mind immediately is the, the parable of the sower and this image of Jesus as casting out the seed into the soil. Um, yeah. Adam, Adam was tasked to be a gardener yes. um, to, to cultivate the, the, the earth to cultivate creation for it to be fruitful. Um, and Christ comes forth to, to dig, digging and ditching, straining and sweating this, this labor um, mm-hmm. that brings forth the fruit that delights the father. Right. And what is that, that parable of the sower? What is the sower doing? 
the sower is, I mean, yes, it's used, uses an analogy of an actual garden and seeds and weeds and growing and that sort of thing. But what the sower is actually doing in that parable is spreading the word of God mm-hmm. and bringing people into to salvation. Mm-hmm. Now, who does that? You know, that's, that yeah. is, that is Jesus, right? Right. Exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, she hasn't actually specifically said that the servant is Jesus yet, but that is, of course, that's, we know that that is also, that's yeah. who the servant is as well as Adam. But so you reach that bit, that line that says there was a treasure in the earth, which the Lord loved a treasure in the earth immediately. And it, it happens every time that I reread it, even though I know that, that it's not the metaphor, it's not where the metaphor is going, but every single time I think, Oh, the pearl of great price. Mm-hmm. And the person goes and gives away all that he has in order to buy the field in order to dig up this pearl. But that's not, where the metaphor goes, the, the treasure that's hid in the ground is the God-given life force that can only come forth with the cooperation of, of the servant, of the human. It's potentiality that has yeah. to be realized through labor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So not something that is a treasure just, just because it's dug up but a thing that is a treasure that doesn't, that isn't immediately there, but that it is, it's the potential, as you said, um, that comes about both through grace and just the gift of God and the hard work um, of the person, which I suppose is a metaphor also for the work of the church. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, d- divine energy and initiative, but certainly uh, requires human cooperation mm-hmm. um, in order to come to fruition. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. That kind of, mm. I think, I think there's it's good reason to kind of imagine the the church as doing this cultivating work. Yeah. And in enriching our worship, um, there are prayers that can be said over the um, the elements. They're the, the same that's found in the Roman Missal, um, and now what's the exact wording? But they're the prayers that are said over the bread and wine at the setting of the table. Um, I've never celebrated uh, the Mass, so I don't have them memorized. Uh. They use them at the monastery. I can edit out all of this. Uh, they do. Yeah. Um, blessed are you, Lord our God, for through your goodness we have this bread to set before you, which earth has given and human hands have made. And the blessing of the wine is blessed are you, Lord our God, for through your goodness we have received this wine that we set before you, fruit of the vine and work of human hands. There's that in both those blessings, the combination of the fruitfulness that comes from God's life-giving energy, but also the activity of humans that actually transform mm-hmm. it into this um, final form. Mm-hmm. Uh, God doesn't make bread. God makes grain, and then we turned it into bread. Um, God doesn't make wine. Um, 
God makes grapes and then we turn it into wine. Ultimately through a process that's entirely in God's <laughs> mysterious hands. But without our stewardship, it doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Or, well, I guess wine could happen naturally, but it wouldn't be very good wine. Probably make you pretty sick. That's enough of that. Um, <laughs> Don't chase that rabbit trail too far. Yeah. <laughs> but I think I think the, the, the main point is, right, that there's this treasure in the earth that that comes of god's goodness that the servant has to go and toil to to bring to completion and set before the lord set before the father um it's it's this this work of bringing something to perfection bringing it to completion um that it comes from god and our role and Christ's role is to develop it, cultivate it, mm-hmm. I don't, grow it um, in, into the final fruit. That, that, <laughs> that she said, he knew that it delighted the Lord, um, which just, yeah. Every, t- every time Julian uses language like delight around the Father, um, it, it warms my heart because so often, like I'm prone to thinking of the father here, even like as this sort of implacable, impassive figure. Um, and the words like delight just kind of interrupt that. Absolutely. There is, there's a, there's, there's a fieriness, a little joy, like warmth. Is the Lord is is sitting serenely but not impassively. It's one of the ongoing themes of my bishop, uh, Matt Gunter. Uh, he's always bringing up uh, God's mercy and delight, and these two things are. Yeah. Um, he does. Mercy and delight. Mercy and delight. So. Uh, in the servant is included the second person in the Trinity. And also in the servant is included Adam. That is to say, all men, all people, all humans. So she lays out very clearly what is what three things are summed up in the character of the servant. How do we feel about, about all three of those? This is towards the top of page 129 in the orange book, reading 115. Which three things? The second person of the Trinity uh-huh. and Adam and all oh, humanity. Oh, okay. Yeah. Is there any problem with just blurring all three of those together? Is there something new to the listener, to you? Is there something it's a troublesome very, or helpful? It's a very Pauline move. Like the second, Christ is the second Adam. Um, and us in in Adam and in Christ. Um, I don't, uh, Chris, you Chris, remember where it is in the epistles. Um, but... This, this idea of Christ as a new Adam, this, this kind of typological parallelism, um, I think is well established. And 
as far as all humanity being understood in Adam, um, I think, I think it makes sense. Like we're, we're not, I mean, we're only separate from Adam if, if we adopt this kind of atomized, individualized kind of worldview where, where everyone's responsible only for their own actions and is the agent of their fate. Um, we're, we're children of Adam. Um, and I don't think we can escape that. So I think, I think that those drawing those three together makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, it makes perfect sense to me, too. I mean, how can we not be Adam? How in the world could we possibly not be Adam? And then also, Adam, in the face of all humanity, joined with joined with Christ through creation. Um, it just, and then Christ's incarnation, when, when, uh, What's it say? When Adam fell, God's son fell. Mm-hmm. Julian goes on to talk about that, to talk about that falling of Jesus into Mary's womb mm-hmm. to be incarnated, to take on everything, every single thing. Including misfortune and weakness. Absolutely. That humanity has to bring it all together in his person and then on the cross. I mean, that's. That's the whole story, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, they're just that's that's it in a nutshell, as they say. Mm-hmm. And so, um, it's it's a very joyful image to me, a very uh, a very happy one, a good one, and it also goes back to the fact of how how Julian was so elated. At the, t- at the passion, at the time of the passion, where all this suffering and all this pain and all this misery ended up with her being very, very happy about it all, which might not be completely intuitive to a lot of people, but this is this is her this is her view of who who God is, what we are how it all fits together, why it happens, and how wonderful it is. Yeah, I think modern day people tend to get creeped out by the story of the passion because they see first and foremost the gore. And other people in history, mystics, other people in history have seen great, delight and amazement in the passion because they see first the liberation Mm -hmm. and not, you know, that the gore is secondary to that fact that this is the thing that sets us all free. Um, So there's a, an an early church tradition, not in, in scripture, but in origin and St. John Chrysostom and Jerome and um, uh, others in the early church that, that, Jesus is the site of Jesus's crucifixion on Golgotha was directly above the grave of Adam, mm. really tying together this, yeah. you know, as Adam died and was buried, you know, in the, the earth where he 
remained, that's exactly the same site where Jesus dies only to defeat death. Um, and so what, what began in Adam is resolved, reflected, um, summed up. Yeah. Reversed in, um, in Jesus. So there's two places you said, so where, where in new Testament are these analogies made? It's Romans chapter five. And then also in first Corinthians chapter 15, those are the two places where Paul makes parallels between Jesus and Adam. Yeah. It's this, this radical unity in all this, our good Lord showed his own son and Adam as but one man. This, I mean, she's, she's talked about how we are one with Christ and this like this numerical identification between Christ and Adam that like there is but one man like that, that fundamental of a unity between the second person of the Trinity and our humanity is it's so radical. And I, I know this is like one of the fundamental things of the gospel. And it, it is, it is just so, so counter to any other like logic of how the world ought to work or how the world works that that God and Adam are identified. And blurred together in time as well, mm -hmm. because here's halfway down page 129 in the orange book. When Adam fell, God's son fell. So I think in our temporal minds, in our kind of understanding of history, Adam and Eve fall a long time ago. And then some amount of time passes, and then Jesus is born. And then 33 years into that timeline, he suffers and dies. So logically, we might be thinking, well, Sir Adam falls way back then. We call that the fall, right? And then Jesus's fall, the, the fall of the second person of the Trinity, the, the Son of God, happens a long time later. Jesus isn't even born yet when Adam has his fall, but cosmically speaking, um, when yeah, Adam, yeah. when Adam falls, yeah, when Adam falls, God's son fell, which means that even at the very beginning of creation, mm -hmm. there mm -hmm. is a radical identity between the son of God and humanity, even though humanity has just gotten started. Yeah. Because it's what, in cosmic terms. Yeah. So what happens when Jesus gets around to suffering and dying on the cross? He's just bringing into human terms what has already happened from the beginning of time. Mm -hmm. This is unfolding in time for our benefit. Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. We're the ones who are in a timeline. God's not in a timeline. And this is, I think, like, this is... Julian sees time consistently this way yes. that, that the unfolding of time is for our benefit. The toil is for our benefit. So when I fall, 
when you fall, however you fall, we all have, I mean, mm-hmm. humanity and its creativity, we come up with all kinds of ways to fall. Does that mean that the Son of God and Adam are falling with us every time we fall? Or is it all one fall that we're participating in? For me, it's all one fall. Yeah. Hmm. I think it's um it's not it's not a repetition. It's it's instantiations, not repetitions. And this is where like with the Eucharist too, like um the 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 error that the reformers were reacting against by saying the Eucharist not is not a sacrifice is the idea that like we're repeating the sacrifice that the sacrifice of thanksgiving is somehow repeating calvary right. but it's not in that sense that it's a sacrifice it's this reinstantiation it's this this manifestation of this one cosmic sacrifice that that is all bound together and similarly with this like our falls adam's fall christ's kenosis is it's all facets of one fundamental cosmic descent and ascent. Yep. <laughs> well said. I agree. The reformers thought in too linear a fashion. Yeah, <laughs> they did. <laughs> um, let's. let's so, do, so do we a lot of the time. Yeah. Like, it, I think we, that's what you said last week, Jayanne. <laughs> <laughs> no i mean we because because like the unfolding of time is for our benefit we think in linear terms mm-hmm. but yes. but fundamentally what what god is showing julian that this is not linear fundamentally although isn't it interesting that one of our fundamental spiritual problems as human beings is that we live so poorly in the present moment we're constantly in our minds telling ourselves stories about the future tomorrow, 10 years from now, 40 years from now, 100 years from now, or what happened this morning, last week, when I was a kid, way back when one of my music teachers said I'd never make it. Um, uh, or, you know, what happened back in the, the age of the reformers and how they got it wrong or whatever. We're constantly living in the past or the present or the future and so rarely just being present in the present moment. So I think it's, it's a chronic spiritual problem for humanity that we are, um, we have such an easy time of thinking about history that we do it too much. Uh, I think, I think this is part of the toil that, that is set before us. Um, part of the toil is this training of our awareness. And, and I, I think this manifests in a whole lot of different ways in various aspects of life. But like what, where, where I see Julian's like her, her attention to returning our gaze to Christ and this, this, this growing in a constant awareness of being one with Christ. Um, I think 
in light of her view of time, that's like our lives. One of the major tasks of our life is to wrestle with being in time and dwelling in this cosmic moment. And that's, that's, that's a lot of the spiritual work that she seems to have in mind is, is, wrestling with this we are in time we are learning to see all of this in terms of this one cosmic moment the deeper your awareness is of the one cosmic moment the easier it is to look back 20 years 100 years 500 years or ahead however without being overwrought about it to seeing, oh, that time in 1946, oh, that time in 1543, 1517, to be able to see those times and and your future times in a sort of, I don't want to say detached way, but just in a sort of calm and loving way. Um, I think that's, I think that's what Julian had accomplished for herself quite honestly and i think that that is that is a benefit of um that is a benefit of prayer and it's a benefit of in prayer latching on to that to that non-time to that cosmic non-linear time Hmm. i think why do we have linear time because latching on to that non-linear time is all the more beautiful if it comes mm-hmm. as the result of or th- through toil in linear time where we've lost sight of that. Right. It's that idea of like the, the falling in order to be raised to a greater height mm-hmm. that if, if we had, if we had stayed in perfect um, in, in complete awareness of this cosmic moment that would have been great but it's even better if this unfolds if everything unravels and it's brought back to this complete awareness yeah good point i think like that why why do we have linear time like it's (laughs) it's it's so that it can be it's so that that final awareness can be all the more beautiful So he stood before his father as a servant, willingly taking upon himself all our burden. And then he leaped up, wholly ready at the father's will. And soon he fell most lowly into the maiden's womb having no regard for himself, nor for his harsh pains. That, to me, echoes with that song in the Kenosis song in Mm -hmm. Philippians about, you know, Christ, Mm -hmm. you know, finding himself in the form of a God did not regard equality with God as anything to be grasped at, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave or of a servant. Um, But I I love that... um, 
the the conceptual image. I was going to say the mental image, but it's not really an image. But the the concept of falling into the maiden's womb as though, yeah. um, as though like going down a slide in the park, and, and there's a womb at the bottom of the slide or something. <laughs> like, oops. <laughs> no, let's not dwell on that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. There are some versions of the Nicene Creed where it says he did not shun the virgin's womb, which I know to some of my friends who are women that that really rubs them the wrong way as though uh, uh, their response is like, why should women's wombs be something that's shunned in the first place? Why should it be that big a deal that Jesus didn't shun a virgin? There's nothing wrong with, with any woman's womb. Um, which I think is a good point. And I think one of the things that I appreciate in um, in sort of the small C Catholic uh, Christianity in which Mary has a slightly larger role to play is that not only is, is uh, you know, Mary's is Mary's present, not only as sort of a, a role model, but, she's present in her physicality um, and that um, maybe, I mean, maybe not everybody gets to this like I do, but um, for me, the, the fact of Mary, the fact of her physical cooperation in the incarnation is um, to me an endorsement of human bodies. It's not a, um uh, yeah it 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 it's it's something to be celebrated that unlike patriarchal humanity that shuns wombs Jesus doesn't uh because God has made bodies um and so we shouldn't be that it, it's it is holier to have a holy impression of bodies and not to treat them as dirty or weird mm-hmm that's my yeah, little that, uh, on that. You did not shun the virgin's womb is in the prayer books rendition of the Tadeum, which mm-hmm. enriching our worship changes to you humbly chose the virgin's womb. Um mm-hmm. which I think does still still grasp that like the the canonic this this tumbling, this falling. Um but I, I agree. Like I I I find in in Mary, like a, an affirmation of physicality. Um. Yeah, we can't get away from the fact that Jesus was born physically of an actual woman. She carried him in her in her womb. She bore him. She fed him. She, I mean, every single thing that you can imagine in the whole line of conception, pregnancy, birth, nurturing happened. And um, I mean, that's, that's part and parcel of the incarnation. In, it, without, there's no incarnation. It, it wouldn't be an incarnation. I mean, the Gnostics love the whole thing of, you know, 
of not of not dealing with that of how Jesus just sort of like spiritually showed up in some kind of <laughs> you know movie way. Like anyway, being I mean, beamed that, down out of Star Trek. <laughs> yeah. And so if we are celebrating the incarnation, if this is a good news for us, which it certainly is, then that's that's part of the good news. And that's that's just very good news. Can I turn our attention to um to the the reflection on the characteristics of the white tunic. Oh on yeah. Page 130 in the orange book towards the bottom. Um right after falling into the maiden's womb, but the white tunic is his flesh. And then she goes on to like she sees all these adjectives, all these characteristics of the tunic in almost exhaustive detail. Mm-hmm. And every character, every characteristic that she lists has some metaphor associated to it. There's some, there's some symbol represented by that characteristic. It's very like Julian to want to tease out every single bit of meaning and every single detail in what, in what she has seen in this. This is extremely Julian to, you know, I mean, it wasn't just an accident that this, that in her vision, she saw this tunic this way. So she has to parse it out every little tiny bit of it. It's thinness is that there was absolutely nothing separating the godhood and the manhood. <laughs> so do you think this is actually, um, you know, that I, I risk turning this into, you know, Julian's seven tips to greater contemplative awareness on some blog post somewhere. But is this a method that Julian gives us of looking so intently at a thing that you notice or at a vision, at a piece of art, at a passage of scripture and really trying to find everything distinctive about it and then to try to figure out what the meaning is, is this, is is what we're seeing here the fruit of her looking at this image in her mind for 20 years and seeing every little detail and squeezing that detail until a meaning pops out? I don't know about the latter part, the squeezing of the details, but I think it is, um, she does model for us like this minute attention to detail. And I, all of the plays she talks about, like this, the diligence with which she's observing or the, the dedication with which she, she reflects on these showings. And I think she does, she does model for us like this, this, uh, this approach of noticing every detail. Um, whether her approach is to then like, eke out a symbolism from it or not, or if this is like a, a more, the, if these symbolisms arose more naturally, less artificially for her, I'm not sure. But I, I think she does model for us and invite us into um, a very detail-oriented contemplation. Um, 
a, a contemplation that doesn't take anything for granted, doesn't take anything as incidental. Um, like Marguerite, you said that it wasn't an accident that the tunic appeared this way. Um, I, th- I think that is something that she she really exhibits, um, and it's I I think the 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 fact the 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 fact that the detail of the symbolism and the reflection is so granular in this chapter is probably has something to do with the fact that this is the product of 20 years of reflection on this one showing. And she, she's mentioned a couple of times in the chapter that like, this was something that only unraveled its meaning over two decades of sustained scrutiny Scrutiny makes it sound like it's a hermeneutic of suspicion. I don't mean that. It, but like sustained attention to the details. I think that I mean, her, her vision came from God. And so I think she's, I think she's smart to take every detail of it and find meaning in it. I don't think that's necessarily something that we can do to like works of art or songs or, you know, something, I mean, you know, just, just regular human things. I mean, if you take, you take a a painting and you look at it and you find meaning in it, and then you find more meaning in it. And I think you can go into a, a downward spiral into just, just emptiness. I mean, I think you can just go too far with something that a human being produces but this this is a unique thing for her this parable and so and considering that that god showed it to her i think that she's absolutely right to pull every little bit of meaning out of it and look at every detail and find something in it so this method is specifically like suitable because it's revelation and not and not just not some brilliant art, creation right. that, that, you know, some wonderful artist or musician or whatever did. Yeah. Cause you could, you could do something similar with scripture. I mean, arguably one kind of Lectio is similar to this and you can find all sorts of meaning in all kinds of things, but is this, um, so is, is this one of those places where in certain areas, this is where you rely on the mutual discernment of the community and not just like, if if I see some kind of meaning in anything that I happen to see, that's not necessarily an assistance of the Holy Spirit. Um, I don't know. It might be, or it might not be. Pray. What do you mean by the mutual discernment of the community? Well, no scripture is a matter of one person's own interpretation. Right, okay. Um, not uh, not everything that people think is a message from God is a message from God. Mm-hmm. But some things are a message from God. Mm-hmm. And some some of those messages show up in interpretation of things that are unexpected. Mm-hmm. So... I think it's been a, you know, it's it's a lifelong question, not a, not a critique, but a, 
but a a discernment touchstone for for me to to wonder how you can tell the difference. Mm-hmm. Individuals can clearly be aided by the Holy Spirit to see godly messages mm-hmm. in all kinds of places, um, but not always. So, how do you know when you're when you are receiving a, a an interpretation or a message that's actually the fruit of the spirit and when is it demonic even, or just diluted? Um, and I, you know, one of the ways that the church has, as a whole has answered that is that everything should be consistent. You know, what, what it says in scripture should, should harmonize with what is revealed after scripture and discernment can be um, tested by the community. So if an individual comes up with some crazy notion, then the rest of the community can and should be able to say, no, that does not at all sound uh, holy. But then what do you do with individual people who do receive a genuinely holy message? Um, I mean, it's mostly I just try not to be too hasty to accept or reject anything Mm -hmm. that claims to be uh, from God. I think, you know, one of the reasons why these revelations of divine love are, they have risen to the category of a spiritual classic is that so many people have read them prayerfully throughout the centuries and said, there is some resonance of truth in here. But if you didn't, if, if you just had one person saying, oh yeah, this is definitely holy. And then a bunch of other people saying, really? Then uh, we would critique it. But uh, for the most part, you know, it's, it's like a consensus thing. Um, And I think this is one of the ways that the church does its collective wisdom that everyone has some portion of the truth given to them. And when you get enough of us together, then it can be, it's not a democratic it, process, but it's how we, it's how we arrived at the canon of scripture. It's that, that yes. same process of, yes, this resonates. No, this does not. And like under the guidance of the Holy spirit through the years, kind of coalescing. Um, I think it's probably not, something that can be tidied into any sort of process. Right. Um, the Holy Spirit doesn't tend to work very well in tidy processes. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that's yeah. probably why once upon a time, everybody ran things past uh, usually multiple confessors to see like, am I way off base about this? Mm-hmm. Um but now we live in an age where anybody can just publish whatever, uh, whatever theoretically holy visions they've had on their blogs and on Twitter. And maybe that's why spiritually we're in such a turbulent state these days. There are no checks and balances. So you wind up with a bunch of people thinking that like Christian tarot cards are a thing, (laughs) which is probably, not for this episode. Probably not. 
Can I direct our yes. attention um, <laughs> on page 131? Um, All who are under heaven, who shall come to heaven, their way is by yearning and desire. So this is, once again, this like yearning as the path ahead of us. Um, This desire and yearning was shown in the servant standing before the Lord. For the yearning and desire of all mankind that shall be saved was manifested in Jesus. And so this, like, this is Jesus as the servant standing, looking in full mutual love at the Lord. Um, And with this idea of Jesus recapitulating Adam and thus all of humanity, like, our, our desire through which we come to heaven is Jesus's desire. Like it's, it's just underlining this, like, um, that, that, that the, the path of salvation is participatory, that the, the, the desire and yearning by which all of us will come to heaven is manifested in this one cosmic moment in Jesus. And from that, Come the virtues that belong to us. So it's this God is the source that we then work out. God is the, the source of this yearning and desire that in, in our lifetime, our work is to cultivate that, is to, is to return to that yearning and desire more and more, living into this cosmic moment where Jesus as the servant is looking with pure love and desire at the Lord. I think this is, it's it's more of how she like sees this, sees our lives, sees the spiritual life um, as integrating this cosmic moment, this eternal frame into our daily linear life. All right. We, um, we're close to the end of the chapter. What do we, what do we still need to tackle? Well, um, she says that we, meaning humanity are his crown which kind of ties back to the original crown of thorns revelation. So for me, that was very beautiful. Um, Also to note that Jesus or the Julian sees all of humanity saved and redeemed as Christ's gift to the father, that we are what Christ, I mean, Christ's work, all that work that he did, in, you know, in, in his life and wearing that tunic and everything that was, you know, awful of his, his uh, pains and torture, <clears throat> all of that um, is what is brings us 
brings us to uh, brings us brings us to the Father, and Which that one? is His work, and He gives us to the Father. We We're are, the fruits of His toil yeah. as a gardener. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So we're the crop. It seems to stand on its head. It seems to stand on its head. Some of the, I think, um, progressive Christian assumptions that, that we're doing all the work. Uh, Mm -hmm. We're doing a lot of the work and that we're responsible for not doing more work than we're supposed to. Um, Maybe you, you two don't experience the the messaging around progressive Christian circles like that, but it feels to me, from my kind of you know my my Episcopal Church context, that there's a lot you know a lot of um a lot of reminders that that you know if the world is going to get better and reflect the kingdom of God, that it's got to be up to us to try harder to get that to happen. There's a woke Pelagianism. Mm-hmm. Huh. Mm-hmm. A woke Pelagianism. Huh. Um, hmm. But I mean, Julian is making it sound as though the whole dynamic is between the father and the son, and we are just hitched to that. We're the linear manifestation of that. Well, we have to do something. We can't just mm-hmm. do nothing in this world. Every day we're doing something. We're seeing people. We're talking to people. I mean, we used to anyway. And, you know, so there's, if we are, if we are part of Jesus as we are, there's no way that we wouldn't do good things because of that. It doesn't mean that we're, instrumental it doesn't mean that we're in charge or that we can that we can make something happen that i mean god is going to bring the kingdom and god has brought the kingdom and will bring the kingdom to this world and we as christians are part of that and are part of that every day every word that we say every step that we take so how can how can we not? But we I think it's a matter of attitude, certainly. I mean, I'm not gonna say, oh, I'm not gonna help out with the with the with the food shelf gathering because that would be Pelagianism, you know. I right. Just, I think there's a there's a a shift in awareness that like there's we we can we can do thinking that we're the ones accomplishing it or we can do understanding ourselves as participating in what's happening um i i think that that crucial difference makes um has some big effects we're gonna do things regardless we gotta do things but whether we understand ourselves as accomplishing or as kind of participating in the unfolding. Mm -hmm. I think that's where it's like either woke Pelagianism or Mm -hmm. a healthier kind of understanding of our participation. In the same way that the sacrifice of the mass isn't a new sacrifice, but a recapitulation in time of what was offered on Calvary. Right. Likewise, my own pattern of 
doing a little good and then doing a little bad um, mm-hmm. is just the the servant running to do the will of the mm-hmm. master and then falling and then mm-hmm. getting up again. Speaking of getting up again, the end of this is this final transition. She's been exploring the servant and the master and the identification of the servant with Adam, with the son of God, and therefore with humanity and really maps out the the emotions, the longing, the the tragedy, the tragedy, it's a tragedy of the distance that uh, opens up, the chasm that opens up between the master and the servant. But then the point of his rising, and from then on, it's, it's this glorious transformation and everything is different from that point forward. It's reading 119 in the Orange Book. And at this point of rising, he began first to show his power. And from then on, all the same metaphors and symbols that she notices take on a, a different meaning, or they, they shift. No longer is the Lord sitting on the ground, but now he's on his throne, etc. And now is the spouse, God's son, in peace with his beloved wife, which is Holy Church, the fair maiden of endless joy. Now sits the son, true God and true man, in repose and peace in his city, which his father has devoted to him out of his endless purpose. And the father is in the son, and the Holy Spirit is in the father and in the son. Wherever Jesus is seen, the whole Trinity is understood. Oh, yes. Yep. Well, is that a pretty good place to wrap it up? (laughs) Might as well. Yeah. Sounds good. Okay. Next time, we're talking about chapter 52, which begins so provocatively. God rejoices that he is our father and God rejoices that he is our mother. Julian isn't the only one to bring feminine imagery for God into writing, but this is probably where I, I'm guessing where we'll start out. Um, Boy. Who knows? Anyway, thank you for listening to this episode 27 of Notes from Norwich. And we'll be back, I guess, in two weeks with our next episode. So for Jan and Marguerite, this is Chris, and we are signing off. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to this episode. To find out more about Dame Julian, the Revelations of Divine Love, the Order of Julian of Norwich, or us, check the show notes to this episode. You can reach me, Chris Arnold, the producer of this series, at Apple Tree Pods on Twitter, or on Facebook, you can find the page Apple Tree Podcasts. That's all for now. We'll talk to you soon. May God bless you.